I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and this is Sports Psychology Today, produced in partnership with The Washington Times. For more episodes, go to WashingtonTimes.com, and for more information on our podcast or to advertise with us, go to WinnersUnlimited.com and email us at drj at WinnersUnlimited.com. You know, we do this show every week to help educate you and inform you about the world of youth sports, about sports psychology, about the benefits and the detriments that playing sports can have. I've been in practice for 36 years, and I've had the privilege to have worked with athletes at the Olympic and professional level all the way down to youth sports. This past year, I just produced a book called Just Let Them Play, Guiding Parents, Coaches, and Athletes Through Youth Sports. Co-wrote the book with Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame pitcher Jeff Montgomery, three-time All-Star, and Pete Malone, an Olympic swim coach who's in the Olympic Swimming Hall of Fame, who coached a number of gold medalists in the Olympics, coached the Kansas City Blazers swim team for 40 years, one of the top swim clubs in the country. And we co-wrote our book because we feel that the world of youth sports is an area that needs better education. There's a lot of pressure on kids to win. There's a lot of pressure on kids to be the best. And the emphasis on having fun and just playing has gone out the window. And today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Travis Dorse, who works at Utah State University. We'll be interviewing him in a few moments about his research. He does a lot of research out there in the world of youth sports and about families and the interactions that go on and some of the problems that go on. I think youth sports is a great area to learn, to grow, and have fun. The practice that I have focuses on teaching and working with young people about enjoying the experience. I have a saying, foe versus four, FOE versus FOR. FOE means focus on effort instead of focus on results. We all compete to succeed. We all want to come in first place. But you know what? Coming in first place or last place isn't as important as what you learn from the experience. What are you getting out of that? What are you learning about yourself? And I think with young athletes today, we're, I'm seeing, and a lot of the, the peers that I've talked to are seeing, more and more pressure on kids to win at younger and younger ages. We're putting pressure on kids to come in first place instead of play and have fun and enjoy the experience. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Dorsch here in a few moments about his research and what he's found out and how we can help educate and inform people about these issues and make the youth sports experience a better situation for everybody. And now I have the privilege of talking to Dr. Travis Dorsch. He's an assistant professor and founding director of the Families in Sport Lab at the Department of Family, Consumer, and Human Development at Utah State University. He teaches undergraduate courses in lifespan development, human motivation, and graduate courses in human development and quantitative and qualitative research methods. And having documented the impact of children's youth sport participation on parents and families while pursuing his doctoral studies at Purdue. You know, this is a topic, Dr. Dorsch, that I love, which is the whole area of youth sports and the issues and problems we have with parents, with coaches, and with kids, why sports has issues and problems and what the benefits are. So first of all, I want to thank you for joining me this morning on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. You know, you, you're, you, you are in an interesting area because you're doing research on all the things I talk about. I've had a radio show here in Kansas City for 26 years, and I've been in practice as a sports psychologist for 36 years working with athletes, especially young parents, coaches, and kids. And we touch so much on the whole area of development. We talk so much about the problems with youth sports and how to make the youth sports experience fun and what you can get out of it. And I'm really interested in talking with you this morning about your research and what you found out. So tell us a little bit about how did you get into this, first of all? 
Well, it's it's super interesting. I was I was a multi-sport athlete growing up. Uh, I spent the first part of my childhood in San Diego, and it became apparent very early to me and my parents that uh, that we were going to be going down a path of sports specialization. We had we had football coaches, basketball coaches, baseball coaches uh, telling us at the age of eight, nine, ten years old that hey, you need to play our sport year round, and and we'll get you that college scholarship. And obviously, this was. This was a path that my parents were wise enough at the time to know that, hey, this isn't the route we want to go. Uh, we ended up moving to Montana, not just for that reason, but for a number of reasons. Uh, my mom was originally from, from the mountains in Montana, and uh, it just seemed like a better life at the time. And, and gosh, it was in the sport realm as well. Uh, I went from being you know, a big fish in a big pond to a big fish in a more medium-sized or small pond and got the opportunity to, to play a number of sports, uh, four sports in high school, and, and was fortunate enough to earn a college scholarship and go play two sports at Purdue. So really, I think for me and my sport career and our family, um, that was the best decision we ever made. And, and, and that instilled in me, I think, the seed. Um, then I would go on to study developmental psychology at Purdue. But that instilled the seed for me um, of how sports and families and, and a young person's development are all sort of in the same mixing pot, if you will, and how all of those interact with one another. So I was really a case study uh, myself in, in how all of this works together. And, and my, sport, my, my sport parents, my parents were, were wonderful throughout my career, very involved, but, but it was always about me. At the same time, I saw other parents of, of my friends and teammates who were also very involved, but the outcomes were very different for those friends and teammates. So I, I got to thinking, you know, how, how is this different across families? How is this different across contexts? And um, and that's what I went on to pursue in my graduate career. What was different? You know, I, I think it's this unique interactions that happen between families. Again, you know, my parents could treat me one way, and, and it works. Uh, another set of parents could treat their child the same exact way, and it doesn't work. So, you know, one thing we found out very early in our research, as I conducted my master's thesis and then my Ph.D. dissertation and now in my career, is that this is really a family-level uh, occurrence or a family level issue, you know, it, it's hard to take a broad stroke and, and, and put all parents or all families into a black box and say, this is how you do it. Uh, I'm sure you recognize that as, as someone who works in an applied setting that, you know, you really need to understand how these things are situated within family dynamics, within a, a community context, within the broader scope uh, of societal uh, sport. So I think we're, we're really learning that, hey, this needs to be assessed at the individual and the, and the family level. You know, I, I'm finding more and more with the families that I work with, I just had a new client yesterday, that a lot of these kids are driven um, not just from their parents but from their peers and their teachers and their coaches. Um, a lot of kids are driven from their parents, but I'm finding more kids now finding pressure to succeed because they need to measure up to their competition to their peers. I need to be at the same level as my friends, and I'm going to fall behind them, and I better do what they're doing. Do you, are you finding a lot of that going on? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, developmentally, we understand that, you know, that, that children use as a reference point, first and foremost, their parents when they're young. But then as children approach adolescence, that really does start, start to shift to peers. And I think you know, you're seeing that come out in your work with these families. You, know, you recall, uh, if you're a parent out there listening, when, when your child is 8, 9, 10, you know everything, right? You are a god in their eyes. And then the minute they hit 11, 12, 13, you seem to have forgotten everything, right? And, uh, and then and, by the and, time you're 14, you're a dummy. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, you know, we, we also know that children, then as they move into late adolescence and early adulthood, that they start to seek out trusted mentors like coaches and teachers as sources of, of competence information. So, so what we're seeing is this developmental trajectory whereby it begins with parents, then it moves to peers, and then it moves to trusted trusted mentors. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me in your work that you're you're seeing children being driven by by their peer cohort and by teachers and coaches as we move into those high school years, um, and it's absolutely normal. And at that point in time, I think the parents are sort of just left to try and facilitate, uh, whether it's through emotional support, financial support, um, uh, uh, instrumental type support, being at games, transportation, those types of things. It's up to parents to just sort of facilitate those needs rather than to be, you know, driving the boat, so to speak. Well, and I said you're, you're a dummy, jokingly, but at the same time, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because with a lot of kids that I see in my practice now, kids in their mid-teens, say 15, 16, 17, their parents influence on them has decreased. Their parents become more of a problem. Their parents become more of a barrier and an obstacle and a pain rather than a support system, even though they're still the support system. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think it's 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 important. And one of the things that we do in our in our community work, and when we get out there and do seminars with parents, is we describe this developmental process to them, and, and parents need to understand. You know, I, I, I think the word let go, that's probably too strong. They don't need to let go, but they need to sort of change the type of support that they're providing, providing uh, for their young person. And I think that's really important as, as parents think about, hey, how can I best support my young athletes? Well, one of the things that I've noticed and, and that I, I have found with a lot of the clients that I work with when I work with a young athlete with their parents is we talk about the communication that goes on between them and the goals that are set up and the expectations that the parents have and the kids have. And in our book, Just Let Him Play, Guiding Parents, Coaches, and Athletes Through Sports, that I co-wrote with Royals Hall of Famer Jeff Montgomery and Olympic swim coach Pete Malone, we talk about the role of communication and the parent's role especially and how important that is as your young child, whether they're an athlete or not, develops and the role you play and where communication fits in and, and just Understanding where everybody everybody has a goal, everybody has some some objectives, but working on that together. And you know, as you said earlier, the the parents sort of drive the bus. And about eleven, twelve, thirteen, the you know the, that young person starts to take a little bit of a lead. And by the time they're thirteen, fourteen, we say that's when the, that's when that athlete should start to take the lead role. The parent is is now more of a a guide, but not the driver. We let the athlete start to take over. And I think that's where confidence can get built up. That's where assertiveness skills can develop, and I think that's where they can feel a lot better about themselves. I'm so glad you guys touched on that in your book. You know, it's such a huge and I think overlooked area, uh, both of research and application in our field, and, and and so important. I mean, you think about the the processes that we all engage in every day, and and communication is probably right there at the top of the list. I mean, we're communicating all the time with everybody in our social worlds, and and in sport. Um, communication between parents and children is so darn important. Uh, let me give you an example. If you think about, you know, what are the what are the things that we say to our to our young people after a game? Let's say we're a parent and we're we're in, we're in the kitchen and we're waiting for our kid to get home. We've missed their game and they they walk in the door. What's the first thing that we typically ask them? What do you what would you say? Did you win? Did you win? Exactly. That's the go-to for parents. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It means we care. It means we love our kids. It means we you know we understand that it's important to them. You know, other questions might be, you know, how much did you play or did you score? Those types of questions. And, and, and when delivered with enthusiasm, again, these are great questions. But you see, the problem is when you ask those questions, the, the message that we're communicating inadvertently to our children is that winning 
and scoring and playing time are the important things that we care about as a parent. Well, you know, if we could, it, it's excuse me, but it's the results rather than right. the, it, oh. I, I I have a saying: focus on the execution rather than the results. And, You're exactly right, and, and that's, that's yeah, and that's the key thing that I try to get into with the young athletes I work with is let's let's focus on the process. Focus on what did you learn? What are you gaining from this? What are you getting out of this? That's the key thing to me because if you can if you can teach your athletes to focus on the effort, I call it FOE versus FOR. Focus on effort versus focus on results. And if you focus on effort, I think you have a significantly greater chance to succeed rather than focusing on the results. Well, and you're absolutely in line with what we know about this uh, in theory, right? And, and in the science that we do, you're, you're right on point. And that is, you know, we try and, again, when we do these community sessions with parents, we try and encourage them to, to just reframe those questions to things like, you just mentioned it, what did you learn? What did you have fun doing? Uh, what can you do better next time? Those types of questions, because, you see, you can't answer those questions with, with one word. Did you win? Yes. Um, you can, those, those engage the child in a conversation where they can take ownership of the experience. And I think that's a really cool thing then as you start to see these communicative episodes sort of evolve and develop where the, the child can really take ownership of what it is they're doing out there on the field. And the parent, again, as you mentioned, can kind of take that background or guiding role and just help the child um, achieve the child's goals. You know, one, just, just a tangent real quick, we're doing some research where, where we're looking at the, the – the confluence or lack thereof of parents' goals and children's goals. So we simply go out in the community to sporting events and we ask parents, what are your goals for your child? And then we ask the child, what are your goals for yourselves? And of course, they're separate when they answer these things. And we're, we're finding really uh, a, lack, a lack of consistency between those goals, which is really both surprising and disheartening to a certain extent that parents and children aren't on the same page when it comes to goals. Because how hard is it at the beginning and end of each season and, and really throughout the season to, to check up with your, with your kid and ask, hey, you know, what are you in this for? What can I help you do? What do you want to get out of this experience? Well, how do you think we teach that, Travis? What, what do you think the best way to go about doing that is? You know, I, again, I, I don't think it can be so prescribed that, it, you know, here's what every family should do. I think it needs to be organic. I think it needs to develop out of these conversations, uh, not just, you know, at the sporting field, but in the car rides to and from practices and competitions, around the dinner table. These are where these are where sport competitions are, are learned. These are where life lessons are taught. You know, very rarely we have this caricature of, of the sport parents and you know, yelling from the sidelines. Very rarely are children even listening to or taking in what their parents are saying on the sidelines. It's, it's the downtime. Again, it's those, it's those rides in the minivan or the Suburban on the way to and from. It's the dinner table conversations. It's the life lessons. Those are the opportunities to engage your child. But what, what I, I think a lot of parents don't realize is when they are yelling on the sidelines at their child, oftentimes they're making a fool of themselves because they're saying, <laughs> but first of all, they're not the coach. I, in our book, we talk about the athletic box that involves the officials, the parents, and the coaches all directed towards the athlete. They all have yep. an impact on the athlete. You need to understand your role. We always say let the parents parent, let the coaches coach, let the officials officiate, let the athletes play. And I think yep. that's where everybody needs to understand their role in this, in this entire scenario of sports. This is Sports Psychology Today. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Travis Dorsch. For more episodes of our show, go to thewashingtontimes.com. And if you're listening via Apple Podcasts and you like what we're, we're doing here, give us a review and a five-star rating. And wherever you listen, share us on Twitter and Facebook. You know, Dr. Dorsch, when we, talk, when we get into this whole issue of youth sports, 
I've found in my 36 years of practice there's been a shift in terms of a lot of things that have gone on and the emphasis on youth sports today. And I'm finding there's more pressure to win, more pressure to, you know, get a college scholarship, to push our kids to to do this, do that, because if you don't, you're not going to make it, you're not going to survive. And it's very interesting how the, the, the reactions I get from parents are on this, because you have a great quote. It says only 2% of high school athletes go on to play at the top level of college sports at the NCAA's Division One, And for most, a savings account makes more sense than private coaching. I've seen parents spend a couple of hundred thousand dollars pursuing a college scholarship. They could have set it aside for college. Tell us about yeah, that. It's it's true. Um, you know, and, and, and none of us are in a position to tell parents what to do with their money outright. Parents need parents and families need to make those decisions themselves. But if you look at this through a lens uh, of you know, the stock market or investment banking, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna put ten thousand dollars on the table and pass it over to somebody uh, you expect some return on that investment. Say, you know, five years down the road or ten years down the road, you'd, you'd like that to, to mature nicely. Youth sports is not that. Youth sports is not, hey, I'm going to invest this money in my child, and I expect some sort of return on the back end of that investment, whether that be a starting position in high school, a college scholarship, or, or for some families, even a professional career. Um, People need to think about youth sports more as we're, we're investing in the development of our children. And, again, it's back to that idea of process, not outcomes, that you mentioned. Uh, it's not that we expect outcomes on the back end. It's that we expect our children to engage in a process that will, that will be a form of healthy development for them. Are development you f- on the field? Go ahead, sorry. Development on the field, development off the field. Uh, you know, we, we expect them not just to be better athletes, but to be better people. And, and, and it sounds a bit cliche when it comes out of my mouth. I understand that. But, but why, do we, why do we engage them in sports from the beginning when they're five or six years old, four years old now? Why do we sign them up for soccer? Why do we sign them up for Little League? It's, it's not to get the college scholarship. It's for a host of other reasons. So we well, need that, to kind of walk that walk. And that takes me to, to my next question. You, you've led me into what I was going to say. I, I have said on my radio show in Kansas City for a while now, we are on the pathway to setting up competitive leagues for pregnant women because we're starting <laughs> we're getting kids at younger and younger ages in in organized sports you just you just hit it four-year-olds there are four-year-olds now playing in competitive leagues there's yeah. even there's even a soccer company here here in the Kansas City area that has two-year-olds playing in a league which to oh. me is absurd I yep. mean, it's just, there's no place for that. And there was even an article in the Kansas City Star several months ago about this where parents were quoted as yelling at their kids to go out and, and score a goal and beat that kid, and they're two. Okay, yeah. why do you feel in the research you're doing are we going in this direction? Well, it's interesting. I think, I think sometimes the research doesn't get translated appropriately. And let me, let me clarify a key point here. Early participation, especially when combined with opportunities for free play, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, is, is wonderful, right? If that two-year-old is out there in a, in a, in a fun, competitive, in a fun, excuse me, not competitive, a fun uh, soccer league, I'll use the word league sort of with air quotes, that's a, that's a good thing as long as the mission of that is to let them just be out there and running. Um, for instance, my young daughter plays soccer, and she does a lot of picking up of the rubber pellets between the turf field and looking at the sky, and that's great. How it's old is she? Appropriate. She's, she's now three and a half years old, and that's great. We're out there. We're loving watching her run around. 
She's uh, playing. So she's playing, Trev. She's out there playing. She's not competing. Exactly. And there's exactly. a difference. And there's, a, yeah. And there's a excuse me. There's a there's a difference between playing and competing. One of the things that I've been concerned about as a sports psychologist, and and my sons are now 27 and 26. But one of the things I've been really concerned about, kids don't play anymore like they used to. Exactly right. You know, when exactly I grew right up, when I grew up, I'm 60, almost 63. After school, we'd play basketball at my house, and then we'd go up to the grade school and play football and baseball. Play till it was dark. You know, we didn't really keep score. We sort of knew what it was in the back of our minds. It didn't matter. We just kept playing. And if you screwed up, you went on to the next play. Now, everything's organized. Everything's structured. We have safety issues, which are obviously a concern. But rarely do you see a group of kids at a grade school or a park playing without parental supervision or organized practices. It's, it's a really important point you make, and one of the things we're trying to do just at the grassroots level here, you know, some of the parents in our community is, is give our children that opportunity. And, of course, at three, we're not going to let them go play alone, but take them to the park and throw a few balls out and let them, let them invent a game. Let them play. Let them learn and negotiate and talk and have fun. I think that's, that's something that's lost in today's culture. And, and, and back to my earlier point, I think, you know, one of the things we need to understand is that, that early exposure is a good thing. Early, ex- early specialization is not. So when we expose these two and three and four and five year olds to different things, right? Let them go do swimming lessons for four or five weeks. Let them go play a short four or five week soccer season. Let them learn about basketball. Let them do other things. Let them play four, five, six different uh, types of sports, and let them, on top of that, have that time for free play. That's a positive experience at that age range. Why has why why has free play disappeared? Well, you mentioned the safety issue. I think it's a sensationalized thing that, you know, we, we can't send our kids to the park today. Uh, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to come across a parent of a six-year-old who would just say, get on your bike and go to the park and we'll see you for dinner. Uh, so there's that issue. I think it's also the culture of the opportunities are now there for the, for the I'll, use, I'll use quotes again, elite specialization for young people. You know, when, when, when you were a kid and when I, I was a kid, there weren't these leagues for three, four, five, six-year-olds and travel leagues for eight and ten year olds where you travel across the country it just didn't exist so so play was the only option uh, nowadays there are opportunities as you mentioned to to involve kids in organized sport as early as two and three and in competitive sport as early as five six seven so it's a different culture and i think back circling back to your original opening here in our conversation about parents it's not that parents are necessarily um, driving this boat. Parents are just on the boat, and there seems to be no way to stop it, if, if that's a good metaphor. It's, it's this arms race. It's this competition. And if, if my kid's not playing sports by the time they're four, they're getting left behind. And I think it's that idea and that misunderstanding of youth sport that is, that is leading parents to really try and engage their children earlier and at a more elite level. In your research, what are you, when are you finding, what are you finding should be the best time for sports specialization to occur? Because as, as you've just inferred, it's happening at younger and younger ages. I'm talking to a lot of people in the medical field, uh, physical therapists, athletic trainers, and, and orthopedic surgeons who are telling me they are seeing younger and younger athletes come in with overuse injuries at, at, at 9, 10, and 11 years of age. So from your perspective in your research, when should sports specialization start to occur? I think you really need to wait till, till puberty, and there's a couple of reasons behind this. Uh, first and foremost, exactly what you just mentioned, children's bodies need to develop before they start doing things in a repetitive fashion, whether that's you know a golf swing or, or kicking a football or pitching a baseball. Overuse injuries are a big piece of this. 
there's also a certain level of maturity and brain development that needs to take place, and, and usually does by, by the end of adolescence, uh, where you can avoid things or at least diminish the, the opportunity to, to think like burnout. Uh, you know, so so to answer your question more directly, I think I think you when you think about specialization at the very earliest 13, 14, but probably more like 15, 16 years old. So you're talking at least into the beginning of high school. And yeah, we, I think, we yeah we talked in our book about you know towards the end of middle school is the time for that to happen. I I think kids yeah. should play an individual individual and a team sport. Years ago, I was the University of Kansas first sports psychologist. And I had the privilege to work with Larry Brown. And Larry told me something once that has st- stayed with me. He told me this in 1983. Every kid should play a team sport in an individual sport. They should play a team sport to learn about sharing, competitiveness, and teamwork. And they should play an individual sport to learn about self-confidence. And, and he could not have been more on than, than, than anything I've ever heard. And, and that, that has st- stood with me for years. And I think that's really important. I think it's important that kids... You know, have that opportunity to to learn to play with other kids and to play by themselves, so they can learn those different values. Yeah, that's that's on point. And Larry Brown obviously had a, a rich career as a coach at many different levels, and, and he seems to get it. Um, one thing I will say for the parents out there that are, you know, pursuing that college scholarship with their young athlete, college coaches when they're out recruiting, they're looking for multi-sport athletes, right? Football coaches want that athlete who plays basketball and ran track. Uh, in the same sense, soccer soccer coaches they want that athlete who was playing volleyball and maybe running track or why? country. Why? Tell us why. There is so much to be learned, uh, especially at a young age, pre-puberty. There's so much to be learned, and, and and they call this transference in the in the biomechanics and the motor learning literature. And transference is this simple principle that an eight-year-old playing soccer is becoming a better basketball player. An eight-year-old running track is becoming a better football player, right? So there's this transference of skills taking place, which leads to adaptability in the new context. So that same eight-year-old that was running track and playing football and maybe playing basketball and soccer in the down seasons, now when he's in high school as a high school football player, he's drawing on those lessons and motor abilities that he learned uh, as a youngster in those various different sports. So that's a really huge, a really huge deal. And I, I remember I had a, a brief opportunity to play in the NFL a couple of years after I was done in college. We took a survey, and I later saw the results of that survey. And this was of all the rookies that were drafted into the NFL in 2002, I think. And of those rookies drafted in that draft class, I think 86% were multiple sport high school athletes. A lot of them wrestled, a lot of them ran track, most of them played basketball, many of them baseball. So it's not that the pathway to elite participation is not choosing a sport when you're eight and, and drilling it, drilling it, drilling it, and getting to those 10,000 hours of, of practice, which is, which is so famous now. Um, rather, the opportunity is to diversify, to learn new skills, to put yourself in, in different sports settings and, and play for different coaches and play with different teammates, and that's typically the path that elite athletes take. Listen, this has been a great great interview and you've been offering some great advice and information for people let me tell you doctor we've got to wrap it up here so tell tell us how people can reach you how they can get a hold of your information that you're working on sure we're at the families and sport lab at utah state university and our website is, is simply that it's www.usu for utah state university usu families and sport lab.com 
so that's where they can get on our website. On the website, there's a number of opportunities to, to peer in on some of the education that we're doing out in the community, both with youth sports and with intercollegiate athletes. Uh, there's also a repository of great resources on our website where, where parents and or coaches or community leaders can dig in and, and find some things that they want and or need. And there's also uh, an archive of all the published research that we've done uh, over the past few years here at Utah State. So we continue to grow. We're, we're asking and answering some really, uh, I think, important research questions, and hopefully we can translate that to folks like you that are on the ground and working with athletes and families. Dr. Travis Dorsch, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great interview, great information for everybody. I want to wish you the best of luck and continued success in what you're doing. You're making an impact in the world of youth sports and helping educate people on the issues to make youth sports a better situation for everybody. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, I want to thank Dr. Travis Dorsch for joining us today. That was a great interview, great information he's got there. And if you are interested in finding out more, get a hold of him at Utah State University. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and you've been listening to Sports Psychology Today. Our show is produced in partnership with The Washington Times. For more episodes, go to thewashingtontimes.com, and for more information on the podcast or to advertise here, go to winnersunlimited.com or email us at drj at winnersunlimited.com. No matter how you're listening, please check in again for our latest episode. Thanks again, and have a great day.